0: this is shaka Artspeak. speak <laughs> it's like, oh, let's enjoy. do a podcast yeah let's do a podcast. Let's Do it let's do, let's do multiple listening. episodes um i mean we're recording so we're always yeah good, we're so out. who are we talking about uh so we're talking about as you just heard uh we're talking about uh design stuff yeah and um we got another person on deck um we've you know if if at this point the two folks we've talked about you didn't have any idea who they were you're totally not going to know who the heck this yeah, next I guy don't is. Know <laughs> yes. It's I'm just, completely ignorant to this yeah, person. This is a guy who, uh, if, if you play out, he's kind of like one of those like nexus points where a lot of names that you would know kind of connect to him. And he's been very, um, very um, important in European and the North American sort of design trajectories. Um, but yeah, uh, you will never have heard of him. <laughs> so we've got we got uh, Georgi Kepish, uh, a Hungarian-born painter, designer, kind of uh polymath in a lot of different ways. Um somebody who was really hitting that mid-century marks So born in the early 1900s, uh pretty much lived the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So born a few years after the 1900s start, died a few years after uh, the 2000s, or might maybe like at the very beginning, like 20- mm-hmm. 2002 or something. So lived a good century, saw a lot of things change. Um he was like I said, he was Hungarian-born, grew up in Hungary. Once, uh, once all the like heavy like socialist um, politics started ravaging all of Europe, Nazis took over, and you started to see the destruction of a lot of what you might call old-world political institutions. Uh, yeah, he just figured out that he was not he was not welcome there anymore as an artist, like a mm-hmm. lot of other di- folks yeah. did. And so, in the late 1930s, along with you know. The faculty of the Bauhaus and the faculty of a number of these other art schools,
1: yeah. NASA. Yeah, no, I'm being serious, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of, a lot of scientists, scientists. I was going to say, like, uh, we, don't, we don't have those rockets uh, that helped us get through World War II. It's yeah. not for even some everything uh, going on. Affected Germans that were, yep. willing to, yeah, yeah. your so time of uh, migration,
0: a hundred percent. And it was not a not a chosen thing either. No. Yeah, you know, a lot of these folks. Force. So of course you had you know go back to your design history class the Bauhaus was in the Weimar and then moved to Dessau and it was only there for a little bit and they didn't really find a foothold. And by that point, uh, Hitler was like, you're not welcome here. Um, so they all left. Um, so uh, Georgi Kepes had been working in the studio of Moholy-Nagy. So he was uh, Moholy-Nagy was one of the masters of the Bauhaus, right? did photography and image. He came over and started working in the Chicago Institute, which he dubbed the new Bauhaus, and was kind of heading it up. And so he brought Kepes along with him He got to the United States. Uh, Kepes had a long career. Um, Like I said, he kind of started as a painter, kind of in the the fine arts tradition. Um, And because of that, he didn't see design as some like separate sort of like standoff thing, but he actually saw these as like almost like two sides of the same coin or like expressions that come out of the same fertile soil, Uh, a lot of different things like that. So he eventually gets called in like the late 60s, I think, Um, early 70s uh, by the folks at MIT. And they say, hey, if you want to come up here, it'd be great if you could form something that would eventually become the Center for Advanced Visual Studies. So a lot of the folks who had been at places like the New Bauhaus or Chicago Institute uh, and Black Mountain, like these folks kind of came up there. And it was like a late career sort of space for them. So Mm -hmm. at this point, you know, you're talking about folks in their 60s and 70s who have this amazing amount of knowledge yeah. and they also are not too inclined to be so specialized or so commercialized or industrialized. So they can teach a number of things and they can really teach the the ecosystem of what design and art looks like, how it touches uh, social reality and things like that. So I don't think it's a, I also don't think it's a, a, a coincidence that around this same period of the late 60s or 70s, you start to get ideas of like social responsibility in design. So how design can, can mitigate problems of like urban spaces. Right. So we get back from world war two we start throwing up all these more or less bunkers that we call public housing. And we find out that, Oh, people don't thrive here. Mm-hmm. In fact, it mm-hmm. creates a lot more problems. Yeah. Um, and so things like that were places where a lot of these, these designers were looking and saying like, well, there's, there needs to be some sort of awareness about, what we make and how it impacts people and we've known this for a long time and it actually impacts the way our cities do or do not thrive so 50 years later we're still having these conversations i mean here in richmond we're finally getting to the point where we're destroying those 1940s public housing units because (laughs) we've known for 80 years that they are not a humanizing element of the city yeah but then you have the the void where you have to start asking the question like what what replaces it yeah yeah so Georgie Kapish was really kind of in this conversation doing a whole lot of stuff. So, um, we got three clips, uh, we want to kind of run through today and, uh, talk about, because he was, uh, you know, early, earlier Cody and I were talking and he said something about, like, Oh, is he just a theorist? And I would say that I, I told him, I was like, well, he was, but theory actually played into practice. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't where he, you, he didn't come up in a world where there was so much freedom where he could just think about art and that made him an artist but he actually was thinking about art because it actually did something in the making mm-hmm. so it wasn't just i need to think better about it but i have to think better in order to make better so um yeah we'll start off um two of these recordings are pretty good uh the third one is hard to hear but um we'll we'll kind of we'll kind of make do so here's the first bit
2: i grew up first after the first world war and it had many both tragedies and hopes. Usually when you are seeing very dark, then you have at least the dreams of much light. And so that was my own life, always confronting with the sadness or the tragedies of social and personal life. And I was hoping to compensate for the missing part by dreaming about much better worlds than I had. So, um,
0: compensate for the missing part by dreaming about much better worlds than I had.
1: Yeah. Or when you're well, when he said, uh, "When you're seeing much dark, you dream for much light." Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good, good encapsulation of everything else. Yeah, because it's
0: not a unique idea in art history, right?
1: I mean, like this is something that's kind of a, a, I don't
0: want to say a normal refrain, but it's at least persistent, Mm -hmm. right? That there's a, a future-looking aspect of it. Um mm. yeah and that you know within like uh within some of the more um you know painting sculpture mm-hmm. uh things like that i'm not i'm not totally it's not my space I don't really understand a whole lot of like where those things crop up but um where i mean my first thought was like, where would he have gotten some idea like this uh within art practice like historically where would you have seen shades of that mm-hmm
3: yeah, what stands out to me about the quote is he references his childhood um, and, and living through that darkness. And I appreciate how he talks about sort of, um, I guess, social tragedy or difficulty and personal tragedy and difficulty because mm. yeah, um, yeah. that's a very sort of totalizing statement about the human experience. You know, there, some people live in times where there's a lot of like social tragedy some people live in times where there's less of that, but we're always dealing with our personal tragedy as well. Mm -hmm. And so that um, need for hope or a need for imagining the light in the darkness is is sort of like a universal experience. Um, And it always is interesting to me when I hear about people who've gone through extreme difficulty and that produces something in them that leads them towards the arts. Yeah. Um, And I always have that question in my mind of like of all the things, why would going through those experiences lead you towards the arts as opposed to any other viable maybe conclusion for trying to pursue that hope or that light?
0: Yeah, no, it's a good question. And it that that concept, that, that idea you're talking about, Cody, makes me think of the show we did back in October 2020, The Four Horsemen. Um, you know, so we had lived through about six months of like lockdowns and quarantine and, and just the inundation of like, oh, everybody's dying. All this stuff is terrible. Like, this is a dark six months. Mm-hmm. right? Very dark. And, uh, you know, same sort of questions pop up. of like, like, why would people be choosing certain things in these moments? Because there is a lot of tragedy surrounding everything. Um, but in that show, the thing that was so striking is that the work that was made was all very hopeful. Mm-hmm. This was work that was made, you know, <laughs> while people were in quarantine and locked down and not going outside and you know, maybe all they were doing at best was like picking up some groceries or, or you know, seeing their neighbors from a distance. And mm-hmm. they chose to paint flowers and brightly colored things and do like uh, assemblage work. And it's, it's not what you expected. Like if you if you told me that six months after a worldwide pandemic had locked everybody in their home, the first show we would have back would be one that was brightly colored and hopeful. I'd <laughs> be Like how? That feels like a lie. Mm-hmm. But all those guys you know, shout out to y'all, Chino, Curtis, James, Josh. Mm-hmm. Um, they decided to make hopeful things. They decided to make things that actually, where they chose something brighter, where they chose that that hope amidst the tra- tragedy. Mm-hmm. It was powerful. Yeah. It's definitely,
3: you can have sort of two different positions. It's a sort of like when you're sad, do you listen to sad music or do you listen to happy music? Yeah, like yeah. You could You can sort of divide people out into those where it's like, sometimes people make art or engage art or just want to reflect the feelings that they're having. And, and some people have a desire to actually change and, and move onward. And so they will be in a down place or a difficult place, but they have a vision for what the future could be or what a, a better life could be. And they work towards that. And he sounds like the sort of guy, and I would just say personally, I think there's, there's a lot more to when you're in those places of difficulty having a hope towards something better. Mm-hmm. Um, cause otherwise, you know, you have sad people need a bunch of sad stuff and everyone else gets sad about it and there's not really any solution. And he's a guy who's really, I mean, talk about going through some of the worst moments and some of the most difficult places in the 20th
0: century in certain ways. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. I can't imagine it being like, you know, six to 10 during world war one, you know, like just kind of coming into your knowledge of the outside world and that knowledge being excruciating. Yeah. And then to see the, the economic destruction that happens by how the first world war was closed, that just would have ravaged all of Europe. So you go from something where there's like immediate destruction of human life. Uh, into something where it's a, a long-term drawn out destruction of human life yeah. um, in different ways. Um, but I think that's part of it is like when with, with that, with this background, like I think you have to either go into complete removal, isolationism, or you go into a space where you're like, no, I, I've seen this and I don't want to see it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I've got to step into something that's brighter, something that has more light to it that has hope. Um, and I think that's huge. And I, I will also say, like, if you're a non-artist or designer and they're listening, um, I wouldn't say that this is something that artists have cornered. Like, it's not – we're not the only ones that do this, right? I mean, there are plenty of people who interject hope into Mm -hmm. the jobs they do and choose it in that direction. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, part of it is because you're – when your circumstances are out of your control, you're felt – sense of control. You you if you choose then you have the option of trying to control what you can. Yeah. And so a lot of times it's like a piece of paper and a pen. Um so everything else is out of your control. So you go to where you you can do something or like when you look at the pandemic like Lowe's never shut down. Yeah. And uh spending for industrial supplies went through the roof because people started building stuff around their house. Mhm. So it's the same thing we we get industrious but it's a physical weight that helps to to kind of alleviate um the internalizing of of darkness and pressure um it's not sufficient enough but uh it's the step that we take so we can feel some sense of orderliness or control of our own circumstances especially when they're they're to whatever level they're not Um, and then you, you make your own, you make a world and then you have to ask questions about the world you're making. Like, what are the rules? Mm -hmm. Um, what are the laws that govern the world you're making? Do I violate those laws? I mean, you know, I'm saying if I draw a circle and I want it to stay flat, I'm making a flat world. And so I start to do things. But then if I make a volumetric thing, now I've violated the world or I, I'm, suggesting that i'm I'm not consistent with the world i'm creating and so mm-hmm. but in all of that i'm governing i'm ruling you know uh and i'm giving myself the perception that i have more sovereignty and agency than i than i actually do um and typically then a lot of folks there's some that will make things that are just um depressing but you'll make it depressing in such a way that's under your control and you're not Mm -hmm. victimized by it Mm -hmm. others will make things that are more light-filled uh because you don't want anything in the world you're creating and i'm using world quotations um that would oppress you further Mm -hmm. so you know like what's the story about the family in germany and in uh, it was a, a beautiful life yeah, when he's yeah, yeah. teaching his kid to perceive what's happening, father, yeah. is told totally, he's he's like, you know, giving his kid a whole imaginary game mm-hmm. um, that is not actually the re- reality at all, yeah. um, and so he's building a world for them that uh, is a veneer over the top of the real world. And because of her trust in the father, she um, believes it. Yeah. I haven't seen him in a long time, so I, I might be miss. It might be a little. I can't remember. I think it's a little girl. Anyhow, yeah. um, that's what. So, you know coming from my perspective on you know the fact that i think we're created beings like we're made to imagine mm-hmm. as a response to darkness and we have a stewardship responsibility but uh when we're not aware of our maidenness and createdness it can default to um feeling as though we're miniature sovereigns and that we have some kind of control in that you know uh, the little thing we do Is going to uh, Change The uh, You know People say Change the world mm-hmm. So I mean I, That's just a jumping off point But I think that that's actually What we do Is we, we're trying to uh, Gather up control You know Like it's why like Tattoo artists in prison Or you know mm-hmm. Like guys Guys A lot of So I mean um, It was too, too much information But my mom dated Several men That were in prison mm-hmm. And uh it was a very scary time, but, she, uh, so she would get letters mm-hmm. and dudes that would never pick up a pen are learning to draw and gain a hyper control over what they're doing. Yeah. And it's like, because they are not in control mm-hmm. of anything else at all. And the chaos is not something you can stop. So, but you can start and stop a line, you know?
0: Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a really good point. Um, and it's also, when you talk about control, I can't help but also think about like responsibility, mm-hmm. right? Because we we talk about those two, those are, those are like, you know, often bedfellows of control and responsibility. Um, and when we get those things out of whack from where we actually can have control or do have responsibility, like it gets weird. And so as you were talking about, um, you know, as the world seems to be something we can less and less control, we find the smaller worlds to build and control. Um, and in the same way, like I, I would say that's a rightness of thinking. It's like, well, you never had the, the ability to control the mm-hmm. larger world, um, you know, and at the same time, like we we are very much in a cultural moment that's been going on for a while where we have this idea of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about like, oh, I'm I'm responsible for fixing X, Y and Z. And most of the things we put in those blanks are things that we have no ability to have any level of responsibility over because they're community-based, they're collective, they're larger than us, they're institutional, they're whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually there probably is a, a fundamental rightness in uh, localizing your responsibility and your control um, so that things grow out of it, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's where like those generous spaces kind of come from. And that's, uh, you know, even some of the stuff that, that uh, Kempish wrote about, like hints at that. That a lot of our, our localized things that we do that we we master and that we do well, they actually flow out mm-hmm. rather than trying to do it at some larger macro level. Uh, a lot of that ideology or philosophy he would he would maybe look at and say it's probably misguided mm-hmm. um, doesn't, doesn't really doesn't really work like that. like you may say it's this thing, but it doesn't mean that it is. Um, these structures are still at play um, See, I think the, the hopefulness uh, is is a fantastic thing um, within him, especially uh, because, you know, his life was... You could look at me like it started off very, very hopeless. So yeah, and, if and then... anybody,
3: why would he have hope? Like you mentioned in his biography, so he, he lives through World War One as a childhood, and then as an adult has to go through all this disruption of World War Two. where maybe at some point in his life he had a feeling, okay, maybe things are settling down. I can start building an adult life and that is behind me. And then as an adult, he has to go through even a greater disruption that brings him over to the United States. Mm-hmm. And one thing, I've I've read a, a little bit of his book, um, Language of Vision, um, which you introduced me to several mm-hmm. years back, Gareth. And you know, it talks about sort of like the phenomenology of vision and, mm-hmm. and how our eyes perceive things and our minds work with what we perceive. And the thing that stood out to me about that book was it's, it's confidence that there's objective something out there that that things happen in the world and that affects our perceptions and mm-hmm. how we perceive it which makes sense coming from a guy who was living in a world where a lot of the factors of his life were things that were just objectively outside of his control he yeah. was on the receiving end and had to react and respond um, and sometimes i'm Sure, probably respond in ways that he didn't really have any decisions about how he responded. Mm-hmm. He just had to, or you know, circumstances. And so, think about that in his life, and then think about him understanding if that's how life is. It makes sense that that's how vision is. That mm-hmm. things are happening outside of us that we respond to them and see them in particular ways. It's it's not really like up to our decisions. We don't willfully control it. Yeah, um. yeah. And then saying, okay, if that's the case, like the, the Language of Vision book sort of seems like it's about, because I haven't read the whole thing, it's like how do we actually live in that world? Mm-hmm. How do we take that knowledge of how we're affected by things outside of us and productively employ
0: it towards maybe
3: that light or that hope that he talks about in this quote?
0: I think it's a good point because you could, you could say a lot of stuff about um, this whole group of folks who were expatriates, um, that they they were engaged once they were once they landed wherever they ended up uh, engaged in some kind of world building, mm-hmm. right? And, and then also because they were just coming out of a tradition that was utopian uh, at its core, mm-hmm. so it was always moving towards something that would be fundamentally better. Yeah, that was the that was the line um, of 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 human progression, mm-hmm. you know. So it was and, a progressivist sort of idea that actually had some useful ends. Um, when you've lived which may through, when you've lived
3: through seeing a very rapid sort of totalizing world destruction mm-hmm. then world building takes on a different meaning because like oh I see yeah. how quickly worlds our world our life our civilization or cultures or buildings can just be flattened mm-hmm. by bombs or or sort of totalitarian regimes and so it's you know, sometimes the conversation about world building, it can just look different depending on whether or not you're living in a time of relative peace and security mm-hmm. um, versus when you have lived through extreme scenarios of sort of world destruction. Mm-hmm. And then those experiences are motivating you to ask the question, how do
1: we actually build something better? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the the sort of... Um, Paradox or the contradiction of uh, utopic desire and progress and like fascist authoritarian. they are actually all kind of, this is why postmodernism emerged. They're kind of all bedfellows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in inherent to being um, a progressive, if you will, is a, necessary discontentment discontentment with what is Mm -hmm. so to be discontent but have an aim you know requires um a reward that makes the work of progressing towards the aim worth it Mm -hmm. and typically what Drives that is an antithesis, like a uh, thesis-antithesis. Mm-hmm. So, so you have to have an enemy to push against, and so that kind of enemy helps to create contrast to look towards a perceived light. And in every utopic or progressive idea. Um. So, you know, I even throw humanism in there. It's a very unpopular opinion I'm about to express. It is actually uh, a raw authoritarian power desire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, at the, the the end, the end is power, and without a moral compass and a set of marching orders. Like, you know, it becomes the issue of, like, um, a ruling authorities hold power and then they execute it. Mm-hmm. Or they're submitted to a power that's above them, like divine. Or mm-hmm. So um, when you eliminate the divine authority, then you step into the power vacuum and become the authority. Mm-hmm. And if you're working off the same ideology, but you're a part of... Um, one sect or another, you're you're believing the same things, but disagreeing about the means mm-hmm. and who 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 should possess the power. Yeah. So, the interesting thing about utopic ideals in like completeness and uh, perfection, bound up in that, is a sinister desire for power. But f- for you to be in power, and someone else to be subjugated to you. Mm. And the reason why I say that is because that's what we're dealing with right now. And that is always a part of um, progressivism. The end is always power. But we haven't seen anybody, you know, not to, so this is not to, but we have never seen anybody um, rule with power without subjugation and authoritarian. Mm-hmm. In totalitarian um, uh, policies and effects, and that always progress and discontentment doesn't stop when power is obtained. Mm-hmm. So then, it the subjugation of of, of the enemy or the lesser uh, dehumanizes them, and, and by extension, dehumanizes the the uh, the authority. Mm-hmm. They become less human by rendering someone else less human, mm-hmm. and so um, we are making the same mistakes that drove uh, these men and women mm-hmm. to the United States yeah. in the 1930s forward mm-hmm. into the 40s and 50s. That's interesting because,
3: and this is sort of a rabbit trail, but it, that explains a lot of the postmodern reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the question becomes whether or not postmodernism is really just sort of a late stage of
1: the same thing. Like, yeah. It's a, so some people say like postmodernism is the uh, awareness of modernism is mm-hmm. the conscious of modernism that modernism didn't have a conscious. So when, you know, when someone is pursuing modernist ideals in America and in England, and then you realize that it, Stalin and Hitler had modern ideals as well. Mm-hmm. And they're very, very compatible. There was a, there was a, there, like, you a, know, a the thing, yeah, yeah, it was a horror. It was horrifying. It's yeah. like, wait, you're, you're wanting to bring about utopia. And we want to bring about utopia, and we're saying we pack these things and these people get in, and you're saying we pack these things, these people get in. Mm-hmm. That was horrifying for a lot of modernists because mm-hmm. you're like, wait, we're too close together on this. Yeah and you committed gross atrocities, you know gross uh, um, crimes against humanity.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And the terror uh, that befell a lot of intellectuals and cultural el- elitist types. Was a realization of, of of how similar goals and ambitions were in terms of big ideas like utopia and uh perf- you know you know it's like somebody over we here saying we can make a perfect society mm-hmm. and then Hitler is like the ugly side of that who's looking into eugenics and like yeah. and you know so and that's the crazy thing is like we, we like none of that's actually really left mm-hmm. and that's why I mean none of those ideas have left at all. And the proponents of those ideas haven't left. So postmodernism uh, just became like the end of macro authoritative truth claims over institutions and people. And it became micro deconstruction. And then deconstruction uh, kicks into second wave. And so it keeps atomizing. And then you you become stewards of the deconstruction. Mm -hmm. So you have like 1990s postmodern theorists who are really stewarding the Deconstructionist ideas and giving them homes in academia, like in institutionalizing these thoughts, but the thoughts were never really um, meant to be calcified or institutionalized. Mm-hmm. They're parasitic to the problem,
4: mm-hmm.
1: and so then as you're doing this in the 2000s, you already have modernism 2.0, which is globalism, mm-hmm. and then you have the the mechanistic means to institute it, which is the internet. So you're you're really in the same place. Mm-hmm more self-aware, which makes it worse because in some ways, because now you're having to sear your conscience and deny your, your memory. Um, so you can in good conscience go forward and expect a different outcome,
4: Hmm. uh,
1: which untethering yourself from the past, which is very much what we're doing now is to alleviate the conscience and to sort of give people over to like carnal passions. Hmm. Uh, so they become useful cogs in the, um, the driving forward of the same kind of goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know when you,
0: the whole Bedfellows thing. Like, I, I get that, and I know. I think back to like like early, early modernism, utopic ideas. <clears throat> and I think the place where I see like uh, uh, separation. Of like utopic and progressive mm-hmm. is that you know with utopia you always had this terminus you had this place where utopia was mm-hmm. and ended there was a there was a goal even if it was a goal you didn't you couldn't really define, mm-hmm. um, whereas with like the heavy sort of progressivist uh, <laughs> humanist uh, kind of destructive things that you are talking about Ryan like the, it's almost like the the goal the goal like the end is the means mm-hmm. so you are trying to be like oh well you just always need to be having progress. Mm-hmm. So progress is it, whatever that looks like. Yeah, whatever it looks so be. you're always in a state where nothing is ever really happening. Right. Because all you're doing is you're, you're propping up the next thing to rally against. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, that makes and, sense. And so and you're and constantly was, like making you're you're, you're making tomorrow's garbage. Yeah. Um, today.
1: So not to go into that article, but that's why when you shared an article, you read about a lot of nonprofits are running from within Mm -hmm. for exactly this reason. Yeah. Because that's the fuel that drives the action. Mm -hmm. And so when the fuel has been burned by a person demonizing or othering, um, you know, like a clear set Mm -hmm. that you start to, you, uh, um, so I like, I'm speaking in kind of like, Underlying big categorical terms, it's not to say that there don't. Uh, there's not. Um, uh, I'm not talking about uh, um, the purity or or not of intent. I'm talking about the underlying consequence. Oh yeah, and um, the ends, the, the unavoidable ends of uh, for which we always step towards. So, like, without a real moral cat, like a real morality that's f- that's fixed, you 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 devolve to a relativized moral space uh, which is really at some point becomes no morals at all yeah Mm -hmm. um and uh so there's nothing constraining you away from your good sentiment like i love people and humans are you know valuable well which ones well only the ones that agree with what Mm -hmm. i'm saying and and i'm impatient so if these other people don't agree with me Mm -hmm. i'm gonna throw them out well that's what That's what cancel culture is, actually. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, when someone can say, I want someone dead because they disagree with me, but shame on you for wanting anybody dead that's like me is a profound contradiction of terms and means that you are standing on faulty ground. Yeah. Um, And so this kind of um, perpetuation does not generate utopia and it it does not generate... um, a state of peace necessarily you may get a state of ceasefire mm. but it's not actually the positive presence of peace and so it, it actually is why we're falling further and further from modernist utopia mm-hmm. um, we're not progressing at all we're just uh, we're just falling further and further from utopia yeah. and people are jumping on the um, the train to drive it home further and they're eating up um, they're eating up all the resource. They're just doing exactly what we've always done. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not doing anything differently. No. And human history is just loaded with just this example. Mm-hmm. It's it's really just one note that we play over and over again in a lot of ways. Yeah, so, yeah. Not to be bleak, but I mean, it's just no, is no, no. what it is. But
0: it, but it makes me. I mean, this is why I think the even like the conversation mm-hmm. about like why you would look to hope is mm-hmm. is a helpful one. Like why why this uh, quote from Guri Kapish is, mm-hmm. is I think interesting in the first place is mm-hmm. if this is the perpetual state, if this is the single note that we keep banging on the keyboard, even mm-hmm. though there's many other notes to make symphonies with, um, if that's the note we just keep banging, then like, why would someone choose hope? Why mm-hmm. would that be a powerful thing? What does that hope look like? It's a, yeah. it's a great area to actually explore. Um, because like, yeah, the article you were talking about, Cody, um, and then, uh, what you are mentioning, Ryan made me think of, you know, that, that story about like the, Argentinian soccer team or, mm. or some South American soccer team they got um uh their, their plane crashed in the in the mountains. Yeah. And so they were like stuck. Mm-hmm. And it was like once all the food sources outside of themselves were yep. were consumed, all they could do was consume themselves. Yep. To stay alive. Yeah. And so that's always a thing is like if if your state is to be constantly consuming the world around you mm-hmm. through your complaints, your bitterness, your control, your whatever. Then, the only place you find yourself is in a a self defeating, and eventually self consuming space. Mm -hmm. There's no there's no generativity that comes out of that, literally
1: or literally or figuratively or both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're actually, you know, um, entering into the potential of a a global food shortage, mm -hmm. um, where all of these ideas become all of these ideas become super real um and uh um the 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 greatest concern to me is is that um is that people uh you have people that want to be animals, yeah, and animals devour, yeah you know you I love uh we talked about it, but I love praying mantises, mm-hmm. but i have seen all these videos of how they devour wasps oh, yeah. and other other creatures and they, they are um, in their nature, according to their nature, they are utterly indifferent to the life that they're devouring. Mm-hmm. So when I say that, you know, we, have, we are already identifying as animals mm-hmm. and that is a, that, that, if that is what progress is, we are in severe trouble. Yeah. Severe trouble um, because animals don't live long lifespans vary accordingly mm-hmm. uh what kind of animal are you prey are you predator it starts to go to raw power yeah right um and animals that are domesticated require domesticators mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh loving stewards where does mm-hmm. love come from i mean so you know so you 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 kind of it's a it's a way of sidestepping responsibility mm-hmm. um and um You know, there's something about, um, beauty and, and aesthetic value and design that is paradoxically powerful and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And part of its power is its vulnerability. It's almost the, it's as if it doesn't have the right to exist. And by existing that's hope. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what you see like in the natural world or whatever one calls it is a lot of the most, you know, quote unquote, beautiful, beautiful things, uh, Um, are befuddling in the very fact that they exist yeah um and that's the paradox of that is because the world is so violent and because um humans are pretty uh valuable i would you know from my Mm -hmm. belief but actually quite dastardly and corrupted fallen broken so the, the paradox is always there we are a walking paradox like when I you know when I go see the the butterfly and then three hours later there's ants devouring the butterfly mm-hmm. it's it's a treacherous that's a treacherous thing right those ants do not care about the wings mm-hmm. and yet the wings exist um, and so you know without a a um, so it kind of can break down to like some kind of divine point of reference and then it's, you have divine point of reference does does not exist mm-hmm. as a presupposition and then you have um autonomy so if, if you just assume autonomy it becomes what a lot of your relativists talked about in the 90s like richard Rorty, like it becomes situational relativism where the yeah. tribe loosely agrees on a set of values you know so you have all these people be defecting like this designer defecting to the us mm-hmm. and teaching at mit trying to create uh mini generative utopias and there's that simultaneous paradox of flowering and vulnerability mm-hmm. you know and um this is why people say things like history repeats itself yeah and we're you're just doing it like if segregation, we're becoming more segregated the a- atomizing of uh, of particular issues that are most in the chopping block right now are um, intended to segregate. Mm-hmm. And there's volitional segregators that don't realize that they're volitional segregators. And the more you disconnect, the harder it's going to be to, to see. Um, well, it'll just be interesting to see what does a defector look like now Mm-hmm. when when the internet is sort of the pervasive net that's caught us all yeah yeah w- where do you where do you defect to what do you defect to mm-hmm. so you have people homesteading so you have you have people taking like design into those places like we went to polyface farms and there's like design in those like engineering ways of working with animals uh, for their in humane ways but f- for the preservation of humans, mm-hmm. and then you have uh people that are um really devoted to crafting their image so they can exist on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And like, so like, um, in thinking about what do you, how do you bring creativity to bear, um, in that paradox it shouldn't exist, but it does weigh, which is kind of like a beacon of hope. Mm-hmm. It's not the hope itself, but it's a beacon of hope. It points to the fact that there must like at some point people have to ask, um, like in Ukraine right now, there is a bunch of people, uh, at the beach mm-hmm. apparently wild war is going on. You have to ask what in the human spirit is such that people would do that. Not mm-hmm. as critique yeah. as a question about the cosmos, as a question about the world. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. 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 So, so we just have to think about it as far as like, uh, there's this great history of all of this know-how and these stewards of know-how and they, they moved. They're like, they're like the Benedictine monks that pres- monks that preserved Mm-hmm. They moved to, to in order to preserve, mm-hmm. and then they passed down, which is why we would even consider these podcast episodes. So, how do we receive what they've passed down, mm-hmm. and not ignore why they had to move and pass it down, like mm-hmm. and take that seriously? Is the question? Okay. Yeah,
0: well, I think it works as a pretty good segue into the the second clip um, of uh, some stuff that Georgie has to say. So let's uh, let's listen to that one now and start talking about it.
2: I still feel that schools like yours and m- mine or the MIT had an immense and still has an immense role in piloting not just the knowledge, but the heart of the knowledge. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is talking about this institutions. So, you know, we've been
0: talking about like the way that like the, the kind of arc or trajectory of like uh, of human work or uh, human striving. Right. Um, but it kind of sits in these spaces and. I uh, kept talking about hope in the last bit. This one talking about how the institutions, the schools that we come out of, like they, they're not, they shouldn't just be these in, in industrialized factories where they're like skills, 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 but they actually should be, um, working on a more holistic vision of the person. Right. So it's like, what, what can you do with skills if you've got like no heart for how to use them or you've got no desire for people or you can't look to hope or you can't, you can't see that, um, the trees outside that you enjoy the shade from were planted by somebody who's been long gone and dead mm-hmm. right so it's it's those sort of things and i know that this is this can be like a this can be like a a, a point where you just kind of rail against institutions but mm-hmm. um but i think what he's saying is not it's not as much a critique as it might be like a correction well i mean he's
3: he's saying in that little quote, he mentions MIT, like he's voluntarily joined up with an institution. Mm -hmm. Um, So he he has to believe that institutions can do what he just said. Mm -hmm. So he's sort of positing a, some institutions just teach the knowledge, no heart. Mm -hmm. He's aligned with a particular institution. So he has to believe as he's saying that the heart and the knowledge have to come together, Mm
4: -hmm.
3: that, you know, he thinks it's, possible for institutions to do that and then by extension uh, probably that the institution that he's at is one that's doing it or maybe at least a little better than any other ones he could have joined
0: that's a good point i think it's you know with this uh we because we can compartmentalize so easily and because uh, i forget the exact phrase you used a minute ago ryan but the you know kind of the ubiquity of the uh the, the knowledge that the internet kind of like lives over everything Right. You can't really escape it. I said
1: it's the network caught in.
0: Yes. So it's the network caught in. Um, It's very simple for us to keep compartmentalizing more and more. Right. It's like, oh, it's just another tab open on my screen instead of having to like put these things together. And so there's a there's a holisticness that I think he's speaking towards. Right. Because he's saying that there is something that needs to be there in addition to just like pure Uh, transmission of information or skills, Mm -hmm. but there's something about then how those things can be applied and used. Um, Which really gets to the place of like, I think an artist when they, when they sit down and start doing something, if it's somebody that, that people will take note of and they'll be like, they're doing something and I can't quite pinpoint like what it is they're doing, but it's resonating on a, on a more than just commercial or more than just social level, but it's doing something that we would, we would kind of point to like, well, that's all what the, the heebie jeebies of art history were pointing to and saying there's, there is something about this that feels more holistic. I think it is folks that, you know, when we talk about those skills, it's like, Oh, you can use your hands well. Right. And he's saying, no, you bring your, you bring your heart into it. And then how are those things applied? Well, we have our head. Right. So you have this kind of, this like trinity of sorts of like your head, your heart, and your hands actually being used as an actual artist. And that is what people can attach to. Um, 'Cause there's plenty of people that have great skills, but there's also some really great machines out there that have great skills. Mm-hmm. And those don't do anything for me, right? They don't advance my society.
3: And he's coming from uh life experience in Europe and the world wars where he's seen what happens when you pair really great skills with really bad hearts. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. I mean, you know, you think about World War One being the first highly mechanized war mm-hmm. and how we produced instruments of warfare and, and dealt with logistics and things like that. Yeah. And that just accelerated into World War II. Um so he, you know, again, I think it's it's important to like think about he's a guy who's lived through these really particular things. So he's not saying this abstractly because he read it in a book and he's like, you know, that kind of like generally aligns with my values as a person. Like he's maybe seen... It's not the academic
1: thing to say. Yeah, yeah,
3: he's he's seen the worst expressions of what happens of really when it doesn't happen. And he's saying, okay, you know, that clearly was destructive. So how can we point towards a better, a better hope as we're living in a particular institution with the particular skills that we're trying to pass down to another generation?
1: Yeah. But that's the... Um, well, not to be the devil's advocate or whatever, but that's the impotency of that hope is you're really recasting the same, the same hope that landed you being ousted, but trying to invert it in, in appeal to your rightness over against the rightness of those that you demonize that are actually terrible, mm-hmm. but you grounding for saying it's terrible has to come from somewhere. Exactly. So like, that's the tension that, that you find yourself in. So then you go to a place like MIT and, Um, you have to demonize somebody. So you have to create a reason for why it is that you're, um, you're doing it better, Mm -hmm. um, at the expense of real truth. So it's like, you can even believe it. You have good intents and it can, it's like, you can, you can say it has to be hard in hands and I believe it and it's true, but those three things are not grounded and therefore not truly aligned. Hmm. So the reality is missing. From the truth claim Which is not to say The reality is not there But it's, it doesn't Take into account Well enough Why those things Aren't integrated And aligned mm-hmm. So like So then you're like I recognize It's like You know I recognize these things And we do these things And it's like Well how And um, That's where hope Covers for uh, Sort of counterfactuals or, or aspects That you're like I don't I can't I don't got an answer for that mm-hmm. We have to figure it out We're going to research and so then that's the gener- the research for the problem becomes the generative point and becomes the capitulator um, more than the positive assertions themselves. Mm-hmm. So, so while you maintain the positive assertion, you're really capitulating the gap and generating research funds and work around the gap, which begats more problems. That is the university. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we do.
0: In that vein, then, uh, is, is this one of those things where we could, do we need to argue almost uh, against him and say, no, maybe the university should just teach skills. Maybe the institution should just be about skills. and yeah. Give the heart to other people. Right. So that's, people. A, no,
1: yeah. So I think, I, I mean, I, I mean or that's the, that becomes the question, right? So like yeah, yeah. if you look at, uh, I mean, we have kids. We're mm-hmm. all families. We're all fathers. And like, that's almost blasphemous to say no. Yeah. What else? But will, I'm like, no one's going to tell me that I'm not a father. Right But the thing is, so being a father, being a parent, is where heart is addressed mm-hmm. most promisingly, And you're either your kids are either so there's people that believe right now that our kids are not their own, they're the states. That's mm. just a fact. Yes. Yeah. So um, institutions are failing at establishing heart, mm-hmm. and, um, and so like or, or affirming heart well by diagnosing uh, the problem with why hearts are hard. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you keep throwing it out because you can't address it and you spend gobs of money creating apparatus to deal with a problem that you're not actually assessing properly. Mm -hmm. And so it just keeps kicking your, you know what, um, until now you're, you're a college professor receiving, um, people that are, are literally. Okay. So when you come to a university, you come, you come with the assumption of growing up into something else. Yeah. We are living in a denial of growing up into something. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a fundamental um, disconnect between the aims of the university and the aims of the individual. So being an adult uh, is, is being unraveled. Mm-hmm. Taking yourself seriously is being unraveled looking together is being take is being unraveled. So it's, it's being disintegrated. And so that, um, lack of address of the heart and the the nature of the problem from Mm -hmm. children, preschool means that you've got 18 years or, you know, 16, 15 years of marinating and glorified, um, immaturity Mm -hmm. celebrated, rebellion against reality and then you become an adult-sized adolescent mm-hmm. or child um with adult sized decision making influence but an adolescent to childlike mind mm-hmm. um where real reality it becomes inverted. So we create technology and messaging and institutional funding to enable that further. Because we define that as progress. Um, and I mean, like, that's the dominant narrative that we're living in. And if you look at when he was in MIT and what he's saying, it, it had to fail because we're here. Right. Yes, it's tough So, because, so, so, here, so that, here's what's tricky about it. This is why I said this is the weird paradox, though. Mm-hmm. It failed at the expense of true and good things that are worth pursuing. Yeah. That's what makes it really hard to navigate because we just want to throw things out and you're like, well, that's, see, here's the problem. Uh, there is great design, great ideology, and at best, um, if we try to keep it uh, un- and maintain our current position in um, loose categories and you know, uh, free fall, you know, non-specified agency, I, I'm a you know amorphous agent of reality then i I have to romanticize this mm-hmm. past yeah to access its goods um, which is a way of saying i have to i have to um you know put it into a nostalgia museum of my mind and romanticize it into a positive so I can associate and access its power by um neutralizing its power and pretending I have its power Mm -hmm. as long as I stay in the state of pretend. And to do that means I have to pretend harder about the state I'm in now because I'm in rebellion against reality. Yeah. I'm actually in open rebellion against myself and against reality. And, and I, and, and I can't take it too seriously because to do so would undermine my first premise and it creates an embattled humanity that that literally doesn't have hands to hold the tools that are being passed to them.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, it's almost like you could repeat his same quote again. Mm-hmm. And you'd say there are institutions,
0: <laughs> and those institutions are also responsible for teaching skills and heart, mm-hmm. um, because it seems like it has been has been stepped back. I mean, yeah. I, I come in contact with um, whether it's students or um, professionals that are you know early career. So I would say you know twenty seven and under. Um, who say, yeah, I learned my skills after college Mm -hmm. that I was taught something else in college or who say, uh, you know, um, you know, what I learned, uh, at this program or, or I had to, I went through a a BFA and an MFA and then I had to go back to some other sort of portfolio space Mm -hmm. in order to actually achieve things that worked in the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it does point to a, a failure on that spot. Now, I think that if all we were to do is return institutions to skill-based um, mm-hmm. places, like I think to Kepes' point, like you're, you are, you're still missing the boat.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, cause it's, cause, because it's... Because you can't speak to just part of a human and
0: expect no. the rest of it to catch up or follow yeah, along.
1: Because we would say the arts are pervasive. So like, mm-hmm. so you can't... So we're not able... We're di- we have a struggle with diagnosing the um, the completeness of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um and we're unwilling to acknowledge how there's a suppression of what is true. Yeah. individually just deny reality and suppress it. Yeah. So that we can um
2: uh play live freedom.
1: It. Yeah, we can pretend that we have freedom yeah. and and more agency than we think. Like that goes back to the free will conversation. Yeah. So we we like to pretend that we have more freedom, but that's not sustainable as a stasis when you throw in progression because i got to keep progressing and and i'm dissatisfied so i got to keep uh you know um what i'm doing is not sufficient enough to satiate me so i got to do more yeah and and you know time is real and space is real such that i'm going to get older even if you say you identify as a five-year-old like it doesn't change what the brute facts are, right? And so, so, but then you have people that are like, "Well, I'm going to throw brute facts out, okay? Um, but you're going to die, yeah. So you you can't. Uh, reality wins at the mm-hmm. e- in the end of the day, like you know we we're talking earlier about mm-hmm. um, C.S. Lewis's book, Abolition of Man. Like reality is going to win, mm-hmm. if you will. Like you can't you can't beat it's, it. It's definitional of what it is. Yeah, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. So you can you can throw tantrums. And deny, 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 but it it will destroy. It, you are being your denial are your denials are admission of the fact that you're beholden and being destroyed. Mm-hmm.
0: It's, it's Which you know, if if you're out there and you're listening, you're like, uh, I don't know about all that. Like, well, just think about it in terms of like uh, in a maker space. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, like you were still beholden to the canvas, even if you're
1: trying to ignore it. Mm-hmm. even if you're trying to make yours not have it there you there are, you were still reacting against it yeah well, jackson pollock it. was still dealing with the with the wreck this square rectangle of the canvas yeah even though he if you really understand our history his big thing was to you know the big the big shift was like he removed the the pressure of his hand in a certain kind of contact way with the brush and the canvas and the mm-hmm. the brush stroke because he swirled paint with sticks but he but he wasn't. He was still dealing with it, like, right. he, like he didn't. Like I said, he never. Like if, if he was really radical, then he would have just um, stopped having canvases in this, and he just would paint painted mm-hmm. floors. Yeah, or you know, or just kick buckets. Like right. like he wanted to hold on to something, but he had a self-aggrandized idea of, you know, you know he, it was a game. It's yeah. a game. It's a uh-huh. it's a it's a it's a trick you're playing with yourself, um, which is another way of saying you're beholden to it, mm-hmm. yeah. Because you're still you're still working out of the premise. You just you just changed a couple of rules, made some cool stuff. I mean, I, but it's like, and and then we'll say things like whatever it takes to get you to make the cool thing, and and it's like ideas have consequences, and we are living out, you know, right now our culture is like the um, sewage coming out of a um, a big pipe It's mm-hmm. just dumping into the river Yeah It's just nonstop sewage It's all the All the ideas That have been passed down to us Have just mm-hmm. been homogenized Into one big sewage pipe And we just You know You got people that are just Gobbling it down mm-hmm. and, and trying to acquire A taste for sewage mm-hmm. You know And force feeding themselves in the acquisition of And that's why I said We don't even have hands To receive the tools That have been given to us so we we um don't acknowledge that we just change the rules you know and and capitulate sentiments Mm -hmm. um and uh you know and that's not everybody i mean but but then what happens is you 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 hold on to fragmented truisms to pad yourself into a safe space in your studio or your workplace mm-hmm. and you're suppressing the truth as well you're you're, you're suppressing reality mm-hmm. um in the moment we're in is the kind where you have to decide what you really believe yeah you know and uh, is you know is it hope sentimental or do you have an object of hope mm-hmm. do you um do you build an arc when no one's supporting it mm-hmm. you know when people are saying you're crazy like do you yeah like what do you do with um, the insanity That is just floating around us 24-7 It's yeah. just insanity, man Just insanity Like all of a sudden So just like Just to make it terrible uh, We have uh, for the first time in my adult in my life Now there's sudden adult death syndrome Where did that come from? Yeah You have uh, pervasive um, young people getting brain clots where did that come from? All of a sudden, only in the last two years, mm-hmm. in the last year. So you have babies or uh, children getting uh, liver disease all of a sudden. And, and where did that come from? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I got some ideas. But so like, and then, and then so like you have blood clotting for young people, unprecedented, mm-hmm. sudden adult death syndrome, uh, young people's hearts exploding at an enormous rate. And do you keep denying reality or do you start to actually deal with it? Yeah. Someone's going to push back. The problem is that we're going to, a lot of us are going to push back into a retreat into nature. Mm -hmm. And nature (laughs) is the kind of place where uh, insects indifferently eat each other Mm -hmm. (laughs) according to hierarchy. Yeah. (laughs) According to what? According to hierarchy and power. Mm -hmm. So while you're talking about there's no hierarchy and there's no power, dude, you're being devoured by a greater insect than you. Like you, Mm -hmm. it's inescapable unless there's an intervention. Yeah, really? I think that's where,
0: you know, even in this in this quote where he talks about, you know, institutions, like, I, I think, um, you know, the 20th century, when we talk about shared vocabulary, it, it, it that is one of those words that went uh, through a massive transition, uh, the idea of institution, uh, to where, you know, you could conceive of a time in the past where somebody talked about an institution as like, a, you know, a collective group of people like-minded yeah. toward the same task. Yeah. Right. Or... Uh, or an organization which sought to preserve certain things in a collective way, right? So there was like a community-mindedness to it or something. Um, and now when you hear institutions, you just hear like propagator of poor ideology, mm-hmm. right? You know, And that's that's kind of the, the general yeah. theme of it, um, which you know goes towards the sin. So it's, it's one of those where like when I hear this, I'm like, yeah, the institutions should be doing this. And then when I'm thinking like, no, the last place on earth – that should be doing any, any skills and heart training should be, should not be an institution mm-hmm. or there has to be some sort of uh, new, new nomenclature, some different way to, to provide uh, a taxonomy for how we understand like how humans group together. Because like, to so what you're saying about, uh, you know, the pipe of sewage, like I feel like, you know, institution is one of those things where like, I could see the pipe coming out of the side of it. Like, that's the way the institution feels Mm -hmm. in the 21st century. And that's Mm
3: -hmm. where you have to start. You know, maybe where Kepesh is is locked out of of a a bigger vision for what could happen is, you know, he sees the need for the heart, but his only category for where the heart can be built up properly is the institution. And sort of what you're pointing at is if you have a complete total vision for human society... That's actually founded on what reality is, and then that that uh, fixed morality. Mm -hmm. Then you might see a complete society where different aspects of humanity are formed in their proper spheres, such that certain institutions don't have to bear the pressure of forming the heart because it's already been done, which frees them to then do the thing that they're good at, which might be complementary. It might be granting skills or helping um, strengthen the mind Mm -hmm. because there's other supporting institutions in the society that are are, are taking care of the whole human. Yeah. Um, And there's that sense of completeness. And as soon as that sense of completeness is disrupted, it's very easy for different sections of all the different categories that make up human life to then start... You know, if they're shut down and not functioning it starts creating these holes mm-hmm. and then other parts of life have to try to fill those gaps yeah. or deny that the holes even exist so they don't have to try to fill the gaps. And mm-hmm. either way you do it, it's either a radical denial of something that needs to be fixed or a improper assumption that where that fix needs to occur is in an institutional space or something
0: else. Yeah, uh, in the early 2000s, I was uh, working for a time with, um, a community of uh, first generation immigrants um, and um, we were doing a lot of different sort of like um, work within the the community and these were these were folks who had, had left their country because they were not welcome there anymore mm-hmm. like it was very much in in line with like capish and so uh, you know one of the things I, I'd get to interact with like some of the children right and some of these children have been born like outside of the the homeland um, and some of them had been born there and then were, were coming over uh, as immigrants as well. And um, I had a conversation with uh, one of the other people working and I said, hey, you know, I've, I've just noticed like these these kids are like very, uh, like they, they're very hard to like talk to mm-hmm. in any sort of productive way. Um, so it's hard to like get them to like, you know, sit down and listen if we're doing a thing or like take instructions and like like they're, I mean, I was like, these are like, these are bad kids. Like (laughs) what's, what's going on? And the guy said, well, it's actually something that we have a lot of uh, conversations with because the culture in what was now their home country um, was that you go to school and you like learn school stuff and that's it. But where they had come from their their home country was very much, you went to school and it was a totality. So you had, you went to school and that's where you were, um, you were kind of led into what it looked like to behave within society discipline was happening within the school and in something that in the United States we'd be like, Oh, that's not the school's business. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to deal with my kids that way. Um, so they were learning, they were learning, uh, how their culture continued. They were learning how to behave and what was expected of them. It was all within the space. So then within the new country, their new home, like the assumption from the parents was like, Oh, that happened somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And the, the schools were like, no, that happened somewhere else. So they were both abdicating something that, they still need it yeah and so at the end of the day you had kids who like they were just buck wild they're just wild mm. and uh but it was because every party assumed somebody else was doing the thing and at the end of the day nobody was doing it and mm. it made a lot of problems right because they're and at that point you can't teach the skills and you can't teach the heart you're already at a spot where you're doing a lot of damage control yeah um and i think that is completely in line with what you're saying you know, what we're talking about here is like, you know, at that point, like it, there's probably a better understanding of how society works than some yeah. of the ways we think about. And even something that somebody like kepish like, you know, don't, don't land, don't land the hope of society strictly in utopia. Like I'd really love to land the hope in today. And I'd love for that to be something that we're, we're moving forward to today and not, uh, we're like, right, hey, we'll get there one day, you know, yeah, hope, yeah, yeah. hope is somewhere in the future. And yeah.
1: That was part of the backlash. I was thinking about, um, so, so sometimes, you know, kids' stories are become more profound as we get further on. <laughs> yeah. So when you think about um, Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, Lost Boys are um, in need of a leader who is equally as lost as they are, but they're all in agreement on the fact that getting old and taking responsibility is um, a bad thing. Right. And they're, they need Hook because Hook is the provider of the thrill. Mm-hmm. and 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 hook needs them as uh a focal point for his his kind of um need for power right. and like his authoritarian tendency so that, but they're both authoritarian they're just different preferences of, of how to demonstrate and execute power we, we so you know and the only real relief is for uh the lost boys to get adopted so they get adopted out of the world you know into another world mm-hmm. where knows mom and dad and they they love them and bring them in and it's an interesting metaphor um because they're completely reconstituted by admitting that that tension they're in is is insufficient the back and forth is insufficient the only one who doesn't do that is is peter pan and he Mm -hmm. becomes a bit of a creep when he comes back to oh yeah later to interact with um what's her name Wendy. Uh, wendy wendy's daughter yeah I mean, if you really let that sink in, you're like, that's kind of weird because you're like an ageless man boy Mm -hmm. who's, you know, so anyhow, there's, it's, there's weird, there's dark side implications to that. Um, Why, why bring that up? Well, what you're seeing in public and I've worked in, there's one thing I know is public education. It's Mm -hmm. the only thing that I've done. When I was 20, I was brought into um, 20 or 19. I was brought in. uh, There was a, a, uh, it's called Mesa middle school and I was working there as like a, uh hall monitor security guards what we called them but you're like a home so um and my boss trusted me and I had a, he was a good boss and uh we had a the university would do these economic hires where they'd hire a it was like a plus two so you hire and you'd hire them from other countries so there was these three hires and one of them so they're hired clustered together Mm-hmm. It, and it creates contractual problems as far as firing goes because there's a lot of stipulations bound up in it. There's incentives mm-hmm. from the state um, to, to bring in, to augment our waning interest in mathematics and science. This mm-hmm. is like, you know, 1996. Um, and I was brought, I was this, they needed to get rid of this man and he had no control over the classroom. Absolutely none. And they asked me to observe his class write notes extensively on his teaching methodology. And I had no education just with your raw eyes, observe and then exert control and, and maintain class order, which I did like I actually could do it as like a 19 or 20 year old. And it was like a weird learning experience. So his authority was augmented to someone else, which was a way of saying like authority over content is merely not enough. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. So how does that relate to, um, Peter Pan, well, instead of correcting the problem by uh, working on what it means to be an adult, we've abandoned adulthood to adult size adolescence. So what you have is lost boys as elementary school teachers that are really emotionally on the same level as their students. Hmm. And so what they do is amplify the desire of the student but, but they warp it as well because they are uh, physically adults. Mm-hmm. Emotionally, there's like an arrested development in a celebration of being adolescent. And so Lost Boys, metaphorically speaking, um, uh, you know, uh, cultivate more of the same. And they're in the position of authority. Mm-hmm. And so the authority that they're over, uh, content-wise, is, is part and parcel to a seven-year-old's desires. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing is amplifying an image of a seven-year-old's desires in a, in a way that um, accords more. There's not the discipline, there's no discipline, there's no, you know, and of course, there's, there's always gonna be some good, good uh, teachers out there as a, as a person who's taught my whole life, but, but generally speaking, what's, that's what's happening. That's why so many people are abandoning public education. And, and that's why all of these teachers go to Twitter and they give, they express tantrums and they're emotionally, um, won over by the approval of seven-year-olds, uh, because they themselves still lack, you know, so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you live in Peter Pan land. Um, and we demonize authorities to the point that you can't even realize that you've become a, a, a problematic authority yourself. You can't see it, yeah. you know, and, and you get, you get, um, amens from from the kids like if my son was in an environment like that or my daughter's like like it would appeal to the the worst of their tendencies and Mm they they'd they'd never know how to have real joy or take responsibility because they'd be overrun by their passions yeah especially when you've got a teacher in an adult-sized body capitulating your seven-year-old passions Mm -hmm. and, and basically saying it's okay there's no so like that's so seismic that that spilled into academia upper level education. Yeah. And so now you're dealing with, you're dealing with like the emulation of the authority and, and the demand becomes proportionately. We're the authority and we demand that you become adolescent as well.
0: Yeah. And, I and think a, an
1: enabler, you know? and in the
0: best possible way of kind of taking, and I think this is where it really was, um, with Kepsha's quote, um, where, where I was going with it in my mind or where I went to in my mind is, um, you know, it's, it's, if, if all we're doing is teaching the student where they are, we are failing the student immensely. And not mm-hmm. just failing them now, but we're failing them generationally. Mm-hmm. So if you're teaching the student that you want, if you're teaching teaching them, teaching the person you want them to be, mm-hmm. or that you think, or, or let's not even put it in that way because there's a really problematic statement there. But if you're teaching the person, in in Kepesh's uh, way of contextualizing this, if you're teaching the person that the society in the future needs them to be, mm-hmm then, then it's, a, it's a very different mindset for education than mm-hmm. to just say, oh, I just need to teach you how to make some stuff. Yeah. I need to teach you how to do a few things. You need to learn some mat, multiplication of math, mm-hmm. and some writing. You know And so we, that's when we can get into spaces of like, oh, we no longer need to teach X, Y, and Z because mm-hmm. we don't see any point now because we don't understand the, the fullness of yeah. society and culture and how it all works together. Um, and maybe instead, we're, we're coasting
3: on having previously taught those things 60 yeah. years ago and we haven't just exhausted whatever good things came from that time frame, mm-hmm. so we can we can believe that it's not necessary, while at the same time benefiting from the fact that it is and
1: was maybe taught in a certain way previously. Hundred percent. But that's and that's not to. But that's so. Like you go back to the Peter Pan thing. That's the whole point of the alligator, mm-hmm. the crocodile. Yeah. The crocodile is death. Time is passing. Death is coming for you one way or another. Mm-hmm. Like you're either going to die in the belly of the crocodile or time's going to expire. So the clock's just marching around, you know, in the, the classic animation. Duh, 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 duh. The crazy <laughs> yeah. thing is you only think about death as it relates to, as you watch the film, you naturally identify in your flesh, if you will, with mm-hmm. Pan and his pals and not Captain Hook. So you think death's coming for him, but the irony is death's coming for Pan and his pals too. Yeah. And you know, P- Peter is vulnerable there just because you're, you're, um, operating in, in, a rejection of, um, growing up into something, uh, doesn't allow you to deny death. Mm-hmm. And that time is passing. Yeah. You know, so, so the, the same enemy is coming for all of us. Mm-hmm. Ironically. Yeah. You know, and that goes to your point about utopia because mm-hmm pan is trying to do is create utopia from a kid's perspective yeah and the way that utopia is imagined is by the stricking of of responsibility well why well because you know his dad was too authoritarian Mm -hmm. um or you know or, or death took a loved one or you know yeah um it doesn't deal with the problem.
0: Right and it goes back to you it's know that with bathwater. What what you were essentially saying earlier about like uh we like living by negation of definition not through actually positive definition. That's right. right? So you're not you're not actually doing anything you're not becoming anything you're not you're not you're not actually moving. Mm-hmm. You're just moving against. Mm-hmm. And moving against is like uh quicksand. It's the whirlpool. It's whatever yeah, else. you just Drags you down. Right. Yep. Yep. Um so like I'm not I'm not on solid land so I'm perpetually in the quicksand. Yep. You know, but hey, solid land is bad. Yeah. So I'll just mire myself in this and we'll call it progress.
1: So why have this conversation this way in my mind? Well, if you don't take into account the size and the scope of the problem, yeah, then the way you bring the hope to bear in creativity mm-hmm. is doomed to fail by undervaluing the reality of the problem and overestimating the ability of the creativity.
0: And you also have... To take notice that this is a guy who was like very much steeped in modernism, yep. and so we have the ability now to sit back and view the totality of the modernist experiment mm-hmm. and say uh, it failed, and not because there wasn't good rhetoric, not because there may not have been good intent—that's right—but uh, it failed for other reasons, um, and it failed for the fact that things were not considered or taken into account, or more precisely, uh, a lot of what modernism did is they put weight on shoulders that could not bear that weight. Mm-hmm. And that was in the individual sense, mm-hmm. in the in the people that were lauded as the heroes, but also in just the the practical ideological sense. Mm-hmm. We we built altars to uh, highly important things, but those altars were built on sand. They were built mm-hmm. on crumbling pillars. They were built on pillars that couldn't sustain the weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the work that was bound up in this was uh, something that could not sustain. Mm-hmm. It would only it would only mean that you know Black Mountain College existed for. 20-something, 30-something years. Yeah, um, It would mean that the Bauhaus was only around for, you know, depending on when you start or end its history, you know, a dozen years or mm-hmm. something like that, um, that, you know, all of these programs kind of rise, had their rise and their fall with individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's good to take note of those things, but to also understand that we are not, just because we might say modernism is over, it does not mean that we are not in consequential space from modernism. Yep and that we're not being impacted by it, that we're not carrying these things into future ideas, and that we're not creating giant assumptions based on some of the things that came about. Um,
1: Globalism and, is modernism. Yeah. Just scaled up and with a clearer... Like a clearer driving force for it catalyzes. Yeah, There's some yeah. clearer, clearer mechanisms in place to drive it further... And, yeah, and it mean- a more seared conscience to lie, so that's the difference. Is to, to push it forward now is to actually suppress what is true, mm-hmm. and to do that you have to sear your conscience and actually be a liar. Uh, whereas the looking back, you would people would say, well, the, the modernists were naive because they were they were charting this territory for the first time, so they weren't lying about anything; they were discovering, yeah, and, and hypothetically. Posturing, and then you have the horror of Stalin and Mao, and you, like you, you get all of these different um, portions of history and third world. You know, just people struggling. Like, like all of a sudden, like this is not this was our macro proposition, and it it can't even deal with neighbors. And so yeah. you know, it, there's a it's like uh the horror of real like feeling as though you're a part of the problem. So it's it's bizarre, but it we didn't really stop doing it we just we just called no, it something different
0: well we, it's you know so if you if you're to take like uh like walter gropius and his ideas with the bauhaus right he said that um that work. we talked about a few weeks ago on an episode um like the totality of like the artistic makerly work that would build this wonderful cathedral which he saw the cathedral as a central like element of like The perfection of like art and design because it was all these craftsmen of different types coming together to build an Mm -hmm. object, a thing that also then became part of like a central spot in human life and experience. Mm -hmm. And we said, oh well, that that doesn't work. So then we just said, well, it's not a building; it's actually just an entire an entire world. Mm -hmm. So we we can move from like community building to world building. In a sense, where we just our, our stakes weren't big enough. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that the foundation was still crap, yeah, um, or that uh, the way we were going about it uh, still ignored giant things in the world, but that uh, our stakes weren't big enough. So let, let's just let's just make the world into that cathedral, right? Mm-hmm. So let's take the tower, um, and instead of the tower or the cathedral or the fill in the blank, how it's been in human history, uh, being the thing that gets us to that utopic point, let's just make it mm-hmm. that the world is. And the problem is when you start to look at how some of these things panned out, um, you know, the tower fell and, uh, you know, like ignorance was spread. Yeah, confusion. The, the cathedral um, wasn't it. And so community starts to be eviscerated in many places. Mm-hmm. Like if we've built it up to a world standard, well, when we find out that that's once again an altar that it can't hold, uh, the ramifications are worse. They're bigger. Yeah, yeah. they
1: actually the co- consequences get bigger. So, like in the story of Babel, God can God um, scatters, uh, confounds humanity and and scatters them and confuses their language, so they have to like relearn how to relate to each other. Mm-hmm. So um, when you look at modernism as a babylistic, yeah, scattering or breakdown, then you get atomized, confused language where yeah. every word is being redefined every and and certain people that that believe whether it's true or not they certain people believe they have power as long as they are allowed to believe they have power uh um are building many many babbles yeah. and confusing the language further and so confusion becomes progress like I've been saying off and on in several episodes so like um unclarity is is um The belief is like unclarity is where life is found Mm -hmm. undoing is where life is found unraveling is where life is found so like that's how people think so like you know the undoing of things without actually having knowledge of of why it's there to begin with Mm -hmm. just means you're doing the same thing over it again but like you said if you're living in the now um a proper sense of um eminence and transcendence can help you properly pause but if you have one or just the other, so if it's all transcendence and no eminence, then you're like, why am I saving up forever for a retirement home I may never see? Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that's people coming. That's that's the 60s generation reacting to their parents. And then you got the 90s generation living in the moment. And yeah. that really is the paradigm shift that just um, hunkers down for a long time. So we get complacent in the moment and we're like, I'm bored in the moment. Yeah. As opposed to being like, oh, we threw something out we shouldn't have thrown out. You know, And we tend to um, We tend to We tend to kill prophetic We tend to stomp out And kill <laughs> prophetic voices Yeah we don't want to hear About ourselves Don't make me feel uncomfortable Yeah, don't make me feel bad about myself Yeah I'm not guilty Someone else is
0: Yeah, another one of those stories I'm not going to get into it But the children's stories That become more More impactful The older you get The Emperor's New Clothes Is 100% one of those as oh, well yeah Like as a kid You're just like Ah, silly people And now you're like Oh crap It's good society <laughs> Um well, I think on that, I mean, we've, I think it's been a really good conversation so far um, with everything. And, you know, we'll probably pick back up with some of these ideas in the future because this is the first time you've heard us talk about mm-hmm. them. Um, but like we always like to say, you are a fantastic audience. We do love you and we will catch you next time. You've been listening to Shako Art Speak, a production of Shako Art Space. We are an independent nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shakoartspace.com. And in real life, in historic shaco bottle.